are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. John writes, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Thank you, Cody, for leading us. Um, I'm always grateful to sing about God's faithfulness when I'm driving two hours from Atlanta hearing screaming kids in my car. Um, But thank you for being here. I'm grateful for you. Um, It's good to see you. Uh, So yeah, our text for this morning is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Jesus talks about being the light. And light, like literal light, that's shining on me right now, can serve a variety of functions. It can accomplish uh, many things. Light can illuminate. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever been on one of those like underground caverns or caves, um, like the Lost Sea, or I, I drive by signs about the DeSoto Caverns. I imagine it's the same way. But at different points during those ventures, they tell you to turn your light off. Like you're kind of in this cave, and they tell you to turn your light off, and the darkness that you experience in that moment is just completely overwhelming. You can't see your hand in front of your face. It, it almost feels... Darkness almost feels a little weighty, like it's heavy on you. And then when you're terrified in the dark, they tell you to turn your light back on, and the light illuminates the darkness, right? Or maybe you're looking for something, and you bust out your phone with your flashlight on it, you shine it into the dark space, and you find what you're looking for, light. It illuminates. Another function of light is light can expose. And one... You only have to think about the, uh, the great blockbuster hit, Twilight, to think about light exposing. Um, Edward, the vamp uh, in Twilight, uh, when he steps out into the, the glittering or the sunshine, his body glistens and glitters like a, the immortal vampire that he is, um, showing everyone that he truly is a vampire. Christine loves these movies. I think they're dumb. Um, <laughs> She's read every book, and I, when I was dating, were we married when I went to see these movies with you? Man, I love you so much. Um, but I went and saw them. But light can expose something or reveal something or bring new insight into someone or something you didn't know before. Light can bring clarity. It can bring clearness to a situation. You know, darkness can be very disorienting. Maybe you've been really, like, genuinely lost in the woods or lost at nighttime driving your car. And you just oftentimes simply have to hold out for daylight to kind of get your bearings as to where you are. Even at nighttime, you can look at the stars, right? And the light from the stars sometimes can give you clarity into where you are if you're navigating by the stars. Light is powerful. I mean, you think about lasers, right? Uh, 
literally beams of light can be concentrated and directed enough to cut through things like steel or diamond. They can make, you can make lightsabers, right? I'm big, you know, lights, light, light concentrated and directed towards an object has the potential to be extremely powerful. It's amazing. But not only does light have all the capabilities of doing all that we just talked about, but light can also make you feel a certain way. Light can bring you joy. And I think about, um, I love natural light. You know, I'm not a big fan of fluorescent lights. Uh, so natural lights, you know, especially when I'm in a room that feels like a cavern or a cave, uh, natu- I need windows, all right? Windows, natural light just flooding in can make you feel a certain way. It can bring you joy. Light can also bring hope. You know, I mentioned before, being truly lost in the dark, uh, truly afraid of not knowing where you are. When, when that light from the sun peeks over the horizon, it brings you hope. I mean, how often do we say, if there's light at the end of the tunnel, right? It means you're surrounded by darkness and the light is bringing you hope in that situation, that there is an end, that there's somewhere to go. Light's very practical too. You know, light can warm you such as like heat from a fire, right? How often do contestants on game shows like Survivor or Alone, if you've seen that show Alone on the History Channel, one of the first things they desire to do, first priority, is build a fire. They need the fire, yes, for warmth, fire to be able to cook food, but also fire just to give light into the darkness, to scare away kind of the predators that may be creeping up around them. But light can also be dangerous, being too close to intense light uh, can harm you significantly. And how often do we tell our kids, don't stare at the sun, right? You stare at a light as great as the sun for an extended period of time, you can lose your eyesight. It can cause significant harm to your body. Or light can burn you. I mean, everybody in this room has been sunburned at one point or another. another. The, the light, the heat from the sun can burn your skin. It has physiological effects on you. So light, light is an amazing thing. So when we're confronted throughout the Gospel of John with the fact that Jesus and light go hand in hand, we need John to shed light, you know, no, no pun intended, on what exactly is meant when he says that I am the light of the world. Without any context, it could be a variety of these things, right? It could be that Jesus is the source of great hope, or that Jesus is the source of great danger. Sixteen times in the Gospel of John, light and Jesus are associated together. In John chapter 8, the chapter right before our text for this morning, in a conversation with the Jewish leaders that Jesus is having, a conversation that escalates to the point of them wanting to stone him at the end of John chapter 8 for claiming to be God. Jesus claims for the first time in John chapter 8 verse 12, his own very words, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he goes on to initially describe what he means in that same verse. John chapter 8, verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now that statement by Jesus assumes two implicit things. One, it assumes that for those not following Jesus, they are walking in darkness, right? And two, it assumes that this darkness of not following Christ that they're walking in is the darkness of death. If Jesus, if what Jesus gives us as followers of him is the light of life, then what we're currently in apart from Jesus is the darkness of death. But what does that look like? What does it look like to receive the light of life 
from Christ. Well, John chapter 9, our text for this morning, Jesus gives us a metaphor through miracle of what it looks like to be brought from darkness into light by the power of Christ through the healing of this man born blind. So just to kind of set the scene for what's going on here in John chapter 9, I'm going to summarize a lot of this text because it's a lot of text and we'd be reading for a long time if we read every single verse. But Jesus and his disciples, we think, are still at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths where they went in John chapter 7. So they've been there this entire time. And they passed by a man born blind. And the disciples begin having this conversation with Jesus about the sin of this man or his parents that he was born blind, which we'll come back to here in just a second. So hold on to that. Jesus corrects their thinking. He makes some mud out of dirt and spit. <laughs> he rubs it on the guy's eyes. I mean, this guy can't really see what he's doing, I guess. But he's rubbing spit, you know, mud on his eyes. And he goes and washes it off in the pool of Siloam, and he can see. <clears throat> Verses 8 through 12, his neighbors kind of see him as a man who can now see, and they have doubts and debate with one another on, is this the same guy, or is this a guy that looks like the guy that we knew? So they ask him, hey, are you that blind guy? And he says, yeah, well, how can you see? Well, that guy Jesus made me to see. Well, how, where is he? I don't know where he is. The former blind man being questioned is actually a, a kind of a, a common thing running throughout this entire text, as we're going to see. But this guy just cannot seem to convince anyone throughout the entirety of John chapter 9 that he used to be a blind beggar, and now he can see. Even though he's literally staring them right in the face, standing there, a, a miracle, walking miracle of what Christ had done. So the neighbors take him to the Pharisees uh, right after uh, verse 12 and verse 13. And this probably wasn't malicious. It probably wasn't because they wanted to get him in trouble. But the Pharisees were just the spiritual leaders of the community. So they probably wanted, these neighbors wanted the Pharisees to weigh in on this situation, on what Christ had done. It would be kind of like you guys experiencing something in your life and coming to talk to me or one of the elders, kind of to weigh in spiritually on the matter. So they take him to the Pharisees. They bring him, and they just start questioning him again as well. The Pharisees join in on the questioning. And John informs us again in verse 14 that it was the Sabbath day. All right, and We talked about that already a couple of weeks ago when we talked about John chapter 5 and the, the significance of it being the Sabbath day when Jesus does this miracle. But just to kind of briefly recap, the Jewish leaders of the day had created an oral law called the Mishnah, that surrounded the written law given by Moses. And this oral law was kind of like guardrails or fences to keep you from violating the actual written law. But by the first century, the oral law carried just as much weight among the Jewish community as the written law. So to violate the oral law in the eyes of the Jewish leaders was to violate the written law. So you're just as guilty violating the man-made laws as you are by violating the law of God, right? So there were three, probably, probably three oral laws, so man-made laws, not God-given laws, that Jesus had probably violated when he healed this man's eyes. The first, he healed on the Sabbath, all right? Healing on the Sabbath apart from a significant, like the person's about to die, you can heal them on the Sabbath, like you have a choice, but you can't heal just anybody on the Sabbath. So that's the first one. Number two, when Jesus makes mud out of dirt and spit, he probably made it like this, if I had to guess, or like this. That's considered kneading, all right? And you can't knead on the Sabbath, all right? You can't do that because that constitutes work. 
Okay, so that's number two. And then number three, by putting the mud on the guy's eyes, he is anointing his eyes. Can't do that. You can't anoint anybody on the Sabbath day. All right, so three man-made oral laws Jesus had violated that, again, just to reiterate, these are not from the Lord, but him violating those put him in a negative light in the Jewish community. All right? So these violations cause the Pharisees to be divided in their opinions of Jesus. He can't be from God. He violated the Sabbath, says one group. The other group says, but who can open the eyes of blind men unless God were with him? So they asked the former blind guy, hey, what do you think? And he says in verse 17, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Conversation shifts in verses 18 through 23 to the guy's parents. So they bring the guy's parents in to the conversation here. And this group of antagonists towards Jesus, they call in his mom and dad. They start questioning them. Is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How does he see? We don't know. He's old enough. Why don't you ask him? All right. It's basically, literally, that's what they say. They kind of leave him hanging out to dry here. Now throw him under the bus. Say, he's old enough. We're not really going to come to his defense. Why don't you ask him? He can answer for himself. But the text tells us why they answered in this way in verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> they feared being thrown out of the synagogue. So it appears by the time of Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 9 that associating yourself with Jesus has significant consequences if you're a Jew. You would be excommunicated from the synagogue, which in essence was to be excluded from the Jewish community, to be excluded from relationships with family, relationships with friends, relationships socially, culturally, a variety of ways. So they lacked the courage in that moment to associate themselves with their son and to associate themselves with Christ. So these Jewish leaders in verses 24 to 34, they bring the former blind man back in for questioning a second time. And this round, this guy starts to get a little, uh, one of the British commentators I read, he said, the guy starts to get a little cheeky, all right? Which I thought was a great word. Um, I'm never going to say it again ever, um, unless I quote somebody from Britain. They say, give glory to God, verse 24, uh, i.e., fess up, because we know this guy's a sinner. So be honest with us. Don't lie anymore. And I love the guy's response in verse 25. He says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's a beautiful response by that guy in that moment. So they ask him again, how did he heal you? It's like I told you. Why do you keep asking me? Do you want to start following Jesus too? Which I love. I think that's great. Man, he's just throwing it right back at him. For him, for the blind man, it's like what is hard to understand about this? This guy healed my eyes. He gave me sight. I literally have not been able to see since I was born. I can see now. No one in history has been able to do this, yet he did. Why are you having such a difficult time believing he could be from God? And they get so pinned in a corner and so frustrated, the Pharisees, the religious leaders here, that instead of dialoguing with this guy, instead of having a conversation with him about the nature of Christ and sorting out the claims of Christ, in verse 34... They essentially hide behind their credentials. They slander this formerly blind man, and they cast him out of the synagogue. And to use the, the language of our day, rather than having a conversation with him and dialoguing with him, they cancel him. It's essentially what they do. Get out of here. We're not going to talk to you. We're going to call you a bunch of names. Leave. We're not going to talk. This is it, the end. But that's not the end of the story for the blind man. Jesus finds him in verse 35. 
He believes, this blind man believes that Christ is the Messiah and he worships him, verse 40. And Jesus dialogues with the Jewish leaders about blindness and judgment, which we'll discuss in a few seconds. But this chapter begins with a blind man receiving sight. And the chapter ends with self-perceived seeing people actually being blind. And the question that we're left with at the end of John chapter 9 is who truly is the blind man? Who are truly the blind people in this text? So letting kind of the the self-disclosure of Jesus, where he says, I am the light of the world in John 8, but also here in John chapter 9, verse 5, letting that self-disclosure guide us, let's go back through this text and let's camp out on a few places here um, and dive a little deeper into the word. So what does this text tell us about Jesus as the light of the world? Well, first, first, we're taking notes. The light of Christ brings clarity in the midst of confusion. The light of Christ brings clarity in the midst of confusion. This conversation between Jesus and the disciples right at the outset of the the text, it demonstrates that there was this misperception of the relationship between sin and suffering that was in Jewish thought, and I would argue is still in modern thought. They ask in verse 2, let's read it again. It says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There was an underlying assumption among Jews of the day, that day in the first century, that those with physical disabilities had somehow, through their own sin in the womb, however that happens, or through the sin of their parents that was directly tied to that disability. There was some confusion around the nature of sin and its effects. And it's the same approach the friends of Job took, right? In the book of Job. Job, repent, right? Repent. There's clearly something you've done to anger God. Repent, come clean, for if you hadn't have done something, these things would not have happened to you. There was no category in their mind or in their thoughts about simply living in a fallen world under the effects of, and brokenness of sin, just in general, the nature of our reality. Rather, every negative effect in the life of a Jewish man or woman had to have been traced back to a specific sin they had committed. And Jesus brings some clarity here. And the first point of clarity is he says that suffering in a post-fall world, a post-Genesis 3 world, is not always tied to a specific sin. Suffering in a post-fall world is not always tied to a specific individual sin. And just just as a caveat here, before we keep going... I'm not going to give us this morning a theology of disability. I think we can do that uh, at other points down the road. I think we can actually just look at the gospel accounts and just see how Jesus interacted with men and women with disabilities and learn a lot about how we, as his followers, should interact with men and women with disabilities. But that's not the purpose of our sermon today. So we'll come back to that at a later date. So I'm not going to do that one. I'm also not going to claim that the clarity Christ gives are clear answers to every why question we will ever ask. There's some things that happen in this world that I don't have an answer for, that you don't have an answer for. Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why questions even existed on the cross, right? So I'm not claiming to know 
all the ins and outs, the clarity questions about why God allows for certain things to happen and doesn't allow for certain things to happen under his sovereign care and rule. I don't know the answers to those things. Those in the Jewish society of the day, they viewed men and women with disabilities in a very utilitarian way, which we tend to as well in our culture. If you can't contribute something, your value is less. Where Christ comes on the scene and he completely reverses that, right? And he says, you are valued because you are a human being, not because of what or what you cannot contribute. And if you're here and, and you have a disability or your parents have children with disabilities, man, God, God bless you. You know, we as a, the body of Christ, we should do everything we can to minister and serve those parents and those individuals and that looks like a variety of different things. It could look like us keeping your kids as you go out on a date with your spouse. It could look like uh, having a bunch of safe people that you can vent to and talk to on hard days where it's just difficult to come and just go, I'm having a tough day. Well, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let's talk about it. It could look like a variety of things, but we as a body want to minister to you, want to love you, want to serve you. And you and your children have much to contribute to the life of this church. I want to remind you as well, just the goodness of God, that he can use anyone and everyone for his purposes and for his glory. But for our purposes this morning, as we're, all we're seeking to answer, given the context of John chapter 9 and the direction of this sermon, is how can Jesus, as the light of the world, help us understand, give us clarity in the darkness on the relationship between sin and suffering? So that's all we're going to address this morning. We'll come back to those other questions later. So getting back to the conversation between Jesus and the disciples, Jesus is correcting them on their view of sin and the consequences of suffering. Now, can some individual suffering be traced back to specific sins? Of course it can. Of course it can. But is all suffering traced back to the actions of specific individuals? Well, of course not. It's not. That's not the, the theology the Bible gives us, the reality the Bible gives us. But how often do we you and I have this karma-like approach in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Well, karma, we would never admit that we believe in karma, nor should we believe in karma. It's not true. But how often, for all practical purposes, when suffering comes our way, do we ask the questions, well, what did I do to deserve this? Or is God angry with me that this is happening right now? Did I do something wrong Again, as we've talked about before, we tend to take this transactional mindset into our relationship with God, where if bad things happen to me, I must have done something bad or angered God in some way that he allowed these things to come upon me. And that is simply not true. But Jesus gives clarity here in reminding the disciples and us that we live in a broken world full of broken situations marred by sin. That suffering is now the natural order of things. That when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that brought in suffering and disease and death and disability and famine and plague. And you fill in the blank. The effects of that sin brought in all of those things. And that's the world we now live in. But we also know, according to verses, four, verses 3, 4, and 5, that the suffering we find ourselves in in the midst of our everyday lives is an opportunity for God to do his work. That he will not waste our suffering. That he will not, it's not arbitrary. That it's not just random 
that things happening in the universe that cause suffering to come along, but he will take your suffering and he will use it for his glory as he works in your weakness. So how do we respond to suffering? Well, this is the second point of clarity Jesus brings is the light of the world. Second, we respond to suffering by offering the remedy of Christ. We offer the remedy of Christ. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus says our response in the midst of a world of suffering is to do his works. Although Jesus has physically left this world, his body is not here anymore. It's ascended up to the heavens. He has left us with the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit continues to work through us, our work continues as His work continues. He is still working. And we hold out the hope of the gospel. And we offer the clarity that Christ offers is the remedy, namely in Himself. He offers us Himself. But here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that this is offering somebody in the middle of suffering just trite truisms that are just cold and heartless Hey, just trust the Lord. He has a plan for your life. Let go and let God, brother, sister. That's ridiculous, all right? That's ridiculous, and that should never be our response as a church. No, what we do as the body of Christ, as the people of God, is we enter into the grief with that person. We sit. You know, Job's friends did a couple of things right. They sat with him and said nothing for days in his suffering. We walk alongside people in pain. And I've seen this so many times in my life, and so have you. What beautiful suffering alongside other believers looks like. I think about a brother of mine who entering into his, entering into the suffering of someone he loved, namely his wife, meant that he held her hair back as she's throwing up in the toilet from chemo treatments. It's shedding tears of grief and loss with one another in silence. It's even patiently reminding your loved ones. My grandfather, my grandmother towards the end of her life began to have severe dementia. My grandfather, his way of entering into that was he would remind her of her name. Times like that where we enter into suffering with those that are suffering to offer the clarity that Christ brings We offer the love of Christ through our love for one another. We offer the peace of Christ through our peace, cultivating peace with one another. We offer the patience of Christ by being patient with one another in suffering and in pain. Will the Lord heal individuals in this life of their physical suffering? Maybe. Maybe not. But if they're in Christ, healing will eventually come one way or another. We hold out the remedy of Christ that is sufficient for physical healing and absolute for spiritual healing. The light of Christ brings clarity in the midst of confusion. Second, the light of Christ exposes our blind hearts. The light of Christ exposes our blind hearts. After verse 7, Jesus disappears from this text until verse 35 when he pops back up. But what you have in the middle, verses 8 through 34, are the responses from various people around the healing of this blind man. And each of these responses reveals a certain aspect of blindness that each of these groups possessed. So let's think about the neighbors. The neighbor's response in verses 8 through 12 shows us that we tend to suppress the truth in front of us. And one of our blind spots may be that we suppress the truth even though it's staring us right in the face. I mean, they can literally see this guy, all right? He's standing right in front of them. 
physically see him with their own eyes and see that he's no longer blind, he's no longer a beggar. Yet many of them cannot bring themselves to believe it's the same guy. They think he's an imposter, someone who looks like him. You know, the truth can literally stare them in the face, yet they suppress it and push it down because of their unbelief. And this can be the response of so many people in our world. It can be our response sometimes to truth. There are many reasons why we may choose to suppress the truth of Christ. You know, Paul talks in Romans chapter 1 that unbelievers suppress the truth that's in their hearts because they desire to stay in their sin. They don't want to change. They don't want to make any big sacrifices. So what they do is they suppress the truth. You know, maybe one of the ways we do this is someone maybe in your life has deeply hurt you or made consistent mistakes over the course of your life, just a repeated pattern of mistakes. And yet, God saves that person, brings them to a genuine salvation experience. Not one of those, oh, I'm sorry, I got caught experiences, but a genuine repentance over time but we don't want to believe it. We're still in our pain. We still feel the hurt of the past. And so what we do is we suppress the work of God in their lives. We suppress it down. We ignore it because we don't want to believe God could change somebody that's caused us so much pain and hurt in the past. Or maybe there's a clear yet hard truth in the scriptures. You know, a truth that may not sit well with our current cultural sensibilities. And so what we do is, we, instead of believing the clear truth of Christ and His Word, we take it and we water it down or we suppress it, make it more palpable or easy to swallow for people. We're suppressing the truth. So how are you? How am I suppressing truth in my life? There are so many ways that we are ignoring truth, staring us right in the face. We need the Lord to reveal those things to us, which leads to the second thing. Second way, the light of Christ exposes us. We tend to love our camps more than Christ. We tend to love our camps more than Christ. You know, in the adamant defense of the Pharisees over the oral law and the written law of Moses from their continual identification with Moses, even calling themselves in verses 28 and 29, disciples of Moses, they're more devoted to their camp than the work of Christ in their midst. They cannot see beyond their preconceived notions of one sent by God that they miss the one sent by God. Now, sometimes we can be more devoted to an ideology, whether it be political, cultural, philosophical, theological, any other coal you want to add on to this list. But we adopt the ideology hook, line, and sinker with little to no filtering of that ideology through the Word of God. I mean, at, the risk of, uh, <laughs> at the risk of stepping in something here, um, for the next few minutes, that's all right, I'm new, you can forgive me. Um, if we've seen anything over the last six years of the political world in this country, it's that we as church people have a hard time navigating those politics, right, and filtering them through the Bible. It's shown us, it's really exposed that we are sometimes more devoted to candidates than Christ. We are sometimes more devoted to elephants and donkeys than the one who made elephants and donkeys, right? We can have our convictions. That's all right. We can have our convictions, but make sure those convictions are grounded in the Bible. Not any kind of man-made philosophy on how government should run or who should be in office should should fuel us and send us forward. 
It should all be rooted in the Scriptures and the Word of the Lord. And if we differ, let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about it. All right? And let's come to the Word every single time. We have so many blind spots that need to be exposed. So many. So many areas of our lives that need to be brought into the light of Christ. The problem is many times we can't see them. That's why they're blind spots, right? We may not even know they're there. So we need one another in the body of Christ. We need each other to function as the light of Christ and helping us see where we fall short. Do you have people in your life like that? Do you have people in your life that you trust enough to be for your good, that you allow to step into your space and call out shortcomings in you? And then how do you receive that feedback? That criticism? How do you receive those challenges? Does the sting of rebuke turn into resentment? Or does it lead truly into a life of repentance? Who are those people for you? I encourage you this week, think about, just think about who are those people in my life that I've invited in to speak truth into my life, even if I don't want to hear it. And then how do I respond to them? Who are those people? And if you don't have any of those people, how can you cultivate those people? So the light of Christ demonstrates that we try to suppress the truth in front of us. It shows us that sometimes we love our camps more than Christ. And then third, way it exposes us is it shows us that we oftentimes prefer the darkness rather than be discovered in our faults. I won't spend too much time on this one for in the next sermon series, which I'll tell you about here in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be preaching one week on confession of sin and what that means from God's Word. So I'll save much of the conversation until then. But kind of piggybacking on the questions I just asked, the response of these Jewish leaders to this blind man refusing, this blind man was refusing to acknowledge anything that he said, was slandering him, was throwing him out of the synagogue. They were acting more like petulant children than religious leaders in the Jewish community. What that shows us is that we oftentimes do not, not every time, not oftentimes, many times, often, yeah, almost every time, don't like to be confronted in our sin. We don't like to have our shortcomings exposed. I don't. You know, instead of admitting weakness or fault, we prefer to walk in areas of disobedience in the dark than bring our deeds to light. Most of these reasons, we keep them hidden are fear. You know, fear of rejection, fear of feeling inadequate, fear of not having all the answers, fear of loss, fear. But although the fear of being exposed is great, and it is, the freedom that comes from bringing things in the deep crevices of our hearts into the light far outweighs any fear that can weigh on your heart. It is an exhausting life having to hide things all the time. It's exhausting. The light of Christ exposes us, much like it exposed many in this text for this morning. So, Jesus is the light of the world. Third, the final point here, Jesus is the light of the world. The light of Christ brings new life in the place of death. It brings new life in the place of death. Verses 35 to 41, Jesus reappears on the scene, interacts with this formerly blind man. It's the first time he comes back in the last, you know, however many verses that is. And we learn a few things about the character of Christ from his interaction with this man. 
first thing we learn is that Jesus welcomes the outcast. Jesus welcomes the outcast. After verse 34, where this guy's thrown out of the synagogue, he is by definition an outcast. He's been cast out, right, of the synagogue. And Jesus hears that, and Jesus takes the initiative and he seeks him out. You saw this as well back in John chapter 5, where he healed the lame man, that Jesus seeks out this man. He finds him himself, and he offers him the one thing he needs in that moment, the one thing he needs more than anything else, Nick's acceptance. The man may have been thrown out of the synagogue, but he was about to be welcomed into the family of God. Being thrown out of the synagogue, as we mentioned before, carried with it a variety of implications culturally, from your family, socially. And Jesus welcomes this guy, and he offers him the acceptance through belief in Christ. Jesus pursues and welcomes the outcast, the marginalized, the weak, those that may not be able to contribute much. Jesus welcomes them, and he brings them into his fold. Second, Jesus gives the spiritual eyes needed to see him. He gives the spiritual eyes needed to see him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asks. Who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus says, you've seen him. Which a few verses ago, this guy couldn't see anything, right? And now he's standing before him and he sees him. Not only physically sees him, but spiritually sees that this is the Messiah and he worships him. The spiritual eyes come from Christ. We need the Spirit of God to open up the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus in his fullness. You know, as dark as this life gets, as hard as physical suffering may get in this life, what we need is spiritual healing more than, spirit, than physical healing. We need to be made new spiritually. And if we have been made new as Christ followers, we need to be continuously reminded of the gospel, sanctified, made more like Christ every single day through the Spirit. We need spiritual, spiritual understanding of who Christ is. And then last, last, Jesus remains available to those that currently reject him. Jesus remains available to those that currently reject him. There is an implied invitation at the end of this text. Pharisees ask if they're blind. Jesus responds basically with, yeah, and you're also guilty. The implied invitation, the invitation that took Christ to the cross is you are blind and you are guilty, but repent and believe and have your eyes open and have your guilt removed. Jesus hung on the cross, he suffered and died that spiritually blind people may be able to see. That the darkness of death would be swallowed up in the death of Christ. That the light of life would be granted fully in the resurrection of Christ. So the invitation still stands. Church, maybe you're in this room, you don't know Christ. Repent, believe the gospel. Have the eyes of your heart opened to see his beauty, his wonder, be in awe of him. Let the light shine in your heart this morning and trust Him for salvation. For those that have been saved in Christ, for those that have put their faith in the gospel, then praise the Lord that our blindness, apart from anything we've done, has been replaced with sight. And may our prayers always be, may they always be to see other people with the eyes of Christ, regardless of what they have to bring to the table or not bring to the table. May we see people with the eyes of Jesus and bring the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us.
Father, thank you by your own sheer mercy, will, grace. Thank you that you have granted us new life in Christ. That the light of the world, Jesus Christ, has illuminated our hearts and our minds to see him, to believe him. I thank you, Father, that you do expose us in our sin, that you don't leave us to live our lives in the dark, but by your grace and your mercy, you bring us from darkness into light. And we need that daily, Lord. We always need to be brought to bring out those dark, hidden crevices of our hearts into the light and trust people enough, trust the body of Christ enough to receive, rather than condemnation, to receive encouragement because of the one who hung on the cross to die for those things. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that our response to you is gratitude, our response to you is thankfulness, that you sought us out, that you found us when we were blind and you gave us sight to see. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.